0: Psalm 73. It was our psalm this morning and when I saw that earlier this week it it got its hooks into me. It's a saying my father-in-law would use about certain things that he he uh, got interested in and I love this psalm. I'm sure you do as well. Um, it's a testimony of one man named Asaph and it's a personal testimony of a time in his life when he was tempted to to doubt whether following God was really the best way and he was looking and seeing that those who didn't follow God seemed to have it pretty good and it's the testimony of the inner thoughts of his heart and then of his coming to his senses this is God's word surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through all the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then... I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever for behold those who are far from you will perish you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you but as for me the nearness of God is my good I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works amen this is God's word Before I go into the text, I just have to note in verse 28, just again to explain to you why on most Sunday evenings lately, I've been reading out of the Legacy Standard Version. I just read out of the New American Standard Version, very similar to each other. But in your Bible, just as a little aside, okay? In your Bible, in the last verse where it says, I have made the Lord God my refuge, the first word, Lord, see it is in lower caps what about god how many of you have god in all capital letters there raise your hand okay all right do you see in the footnote why so just take a moment do you have do you have a little note there why no maybe you don't the reason is is because because the word god there your your translation is telling you by capitalizing god that the word there actually is an l The word for God, the Hebrew word for God. The word is actually Yahweh, which in your average English translation is translated Lord, capital L O R D. But it would have been awkward there in English in verse 28 I have made the Lord, Lord, my refuge. Is that you tracking with me at all? Are you making this sense? All right. So, so some of you, I don't know this. I haven't heard anybody with any concerns, but on Sunday evenings, as I use typically, I didn't tonight, but the Legacy Standard Version, and you hear the word Yahweh, that's a really good example as to why. Because that's what the Hebrew says. So anyways, that's a complete aside. And I just wanted to show you that's an example as to why, actually, I, I really am starting to like that legacy standard version. And I probably should have used it tonight, but, but providentially that might help you understand why. So, okay, that has nothing to do really with the sermon. Um, but just a little translation note there. And again, I'm just conscious that, you know, for many uh, Christians, English speakers, hearing Yahweh, the name of God spoken in a service, is a little unnerving because we're not used to it. So I just wanted to show you there's nothing weird or funny going on. It's just a matter of translation issues. So with that, let's go to verse one. In verse one, Asaph, we're told that this is a psalm of Asaph. Uh, In the last psalm, uh, we had there a notice that the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So even in our psalms, or sometimes we call it the Psalter, there is a ordering of collections of Psalms and we have just completed in our reading in Sunday mornings the Psalms of David um, generally composed by him or in Psalm 72 by his son Solomon. But here in Psalm 73 this is composed by a godly man named Asaph. Asaph. And in verse 1 he declares the truth He's going to tell us of a time in his life in which he was tempted and began believing lies when he was not believing the truth. But up front, he's very concerned that we know the truth. And the truth is, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's good to the nation And he's good to, among the nation, to those who fear God, who love God, and who are pure in heart. He is good. In spite of whatever appearances might be, God is good to his people. He is good. So he wants us to know, that is really verse 1, that is the summary of of his testimony in this psalm. God is good. He is good to his people. He is good to his people and he will be good to his people. And then in verse 2, in verses 2 through, through 14 then, he gives a testimony of a wrong line of thinking. A testimony of a wrong line of thinking. And I'm so gr- glad that this is included in Holy Scripture because it helps us uh, see the danger that comes with when we allow our minds to go down a, a, an alley of thought that is, is unhelpful and really is a, a road to temptation. He came to a place, he says in verse 2, in his faith in God, his following God. He's not talking about a physical stumbling there. He's talking about a spiritual stumbling. And in his walking after God and his walking in the ways of God, he came to a point, there was a time in his life when when he almost stumbled, he almost slipped, he almost fell off the way. His faith faltered and he began to wonder whether God really was good, whether God really is and his ways really is the best way. And the reason for that is in verse 3 and following. He was looking at his own life and he was having troubles. His own life was full of difficulty. Things didn't go easy for him. His following after God in this world was, was always against the grain. Maybe particularly as a young man. We don't know his age, but especially in our younger years but at any point we can look at the way that other people are living and their way seems to be rather carefree and sometimes better to follow Christ he was honest with us he said take up your cross and follow me he didn't say take up your couch didn't say take up your lounge chair he didn't say take a cruise and follow me Take up your cross and follow me, said our Lord. And the reality is that the Christian life is in many ways, in some ways, the most difficult life that you can choose right now. Now, in just a few moments, we'll see that in reality, life apart from God is, uh, is much harder in the end. In fact, it's absolutely folly and impossible leads to death but my point is simply that you have to face up to the fact that living for Christ in this world is going to mean that you're going to have to make decisions you're going to make choices that other people don't care about other people's consciences aren't troubled by decisions that they make about pleasing God they can just go with the flow they can just go along with what the latest polls are or what the latest trends are it's easy. And he says, the psalmist says, they, I saw their prosperity. The, the wicked, that is, the, who are the wicked? Those who are far from God. They, they have no interest in the true God. They don't believe in the true God. They have no intention of knowing the true God's ways or pleasing him or obeying him. They're, they're making it up as they go along. They're going with the world. They're just doing what their fleshly impulses lead them to do. And in actuality, they seem pretty prosperous. And and you have to say, in our day, this this is kind of the story. It doesn't mean that uh, all those who are apart from God are wealthy. The the point is is that there are millions, hundreds, even millions, and even billions of people who who seem to be leading their life and, and seem to be doing fairly well, apart from God, apart from Christ. And in fact, those who are most prosperous, most wealthy who have the best care sometimes because they can afford it and so forth, are those who don't care about how they live, don't care about how they conduct their business, don't care about how they use their money. Of course, God has in his church and in his kingdom those who are wealthy. The point is not that money itself is bad. It's just a reality that, it, that the psalmist saw that the wicked seemed to have it pretty easy. No pains in their death. They they, their body is fat. Verse four, we think, well, that's that's not good. Well, in in a time and a day when you don't have supermarkets and you don't have refrigeration, and um, when the the crops aren't so good that summer, uh, everybody starves. To have a little bit of fat on your body was actually an indication that you are a very well-to-do person. They don't. Verse five, have as troubles like other men. They they don't seem to be plagued. They they. They're pride they, they like the proud they like to tell about their own story they like to say why their way is the best way they, they seem to break God's laws they don't God doesn't seem to do anything they seem to get away with violence verse six they seem free verse seven to do what they want their imaginations run riot they there seems to be no constraints it seems very freeing and Here's the psalmist, here's Asaph leading a life of God of, of, of if you will, staying within the, the framework that we set out this morning of a godly life. They don't have any framework. They do whatever they want. They spend their money however they want. They look at whatever they want. They drink, eat whatever they want. They do whatever they want. There's no constraints and it seems rather carefree. They, they even mock God. They seem to get away with that, verse 11. They say, how does God know? They, they deny that there will be an accounting or reckoning. They, they live their lives not worried about what God thinks. They assume that God is just a myth or that he's blind or deaf. And, and this is how most people in our culture live today. They live as if there's no God They live their life by just a general sense of what they assume is best. They don't consult God or his ways at all. And the predominant value they have, verse 12, is they are always at ease. Isn't that the value of our culture? It's the best thing you can go after, whatever leads to your ease. Because we, in our culture, I, in my comfort, my my well-being my mental state all that we we have elevated all that to being the supreme value as though we are all that so he's looking at this the the way of the wicked and frankly from the perspective he was in at this point in his life it seemed pretty good And this is a temptation for all of us who follow Christ. I will say again, for those who are younger, maybe this this temptation is particularly uh, pressing because here you are relatively early in your life and it's going to cost you some of the decisions that you make. Some of the things that you don't do might seem to not lead to the joy that others have, might seem to rob you from the pleasure that others seem to be enjoying. You seem, might seem to feel like you're missing out. And this psalm is very helpful in giving us a, a, a true view, a, a view of reality. So he gives us a testimony of a wrong line of thinking. That's what verses two through fourteen. He's just he's 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 let his heart and his mind run down a path that he started by verse thirteen, saying to himself, or basically thinking in his heart, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Why why have I why have I fought to avoid lust or temptation? Why have I? controlled myself why have i stayed away from what everybody else does and has no problem with i've been troubled verse 14 or stricken all day long why i sometimes have a guilty conscience because i'm trying to live unto god and these people don't have a guilty conscience they don't have any guilt at all seems nice but then in verse 15 he turns the corner and he tells us that, there, that he came to his senses, that God in his mercy and kindness brought this man, Asaph, to his senses. He said, if, if I speak thus, what, what does he mean? If I speak in terms like I was thinking in verses, 11, verses 13 and 14 in particular, if I let my mind think that way and then I actually start talking to others that way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Our, our decisions as individuals who follow God have a, have a big impact on others. One of the saddest realities in our culture, and sadly in, in the church at large, I'm not saying this church, but it's just a reality. One of the saddest and most tragic realities is the, is, is the reality of older men and women who should know better. They've lived their life and they've lived maybe their life for pleasure or, or for doing whatever seemed to bring their ease or whatever the world promised would bring them joy in their hearts. And later in life, they know by then that it is empty. That It, is, it might have been even innocent. Maybe it was an overt sin. But, but they've lived their life not outright for God, but they've they followed the way of the world. And they just kind of followed the stream of the world. And older men and women near the end of their days, of all people, should be telling young people the truth. That, that path, that the world promises pleasure is is a vapor it's a vapor it, it is passing quickly and in fact it's it's pretty bitter and pretty empty I mean how many men older men I'm thinking of who lived their lives for themselves did what all the other guys did just you know didn't worry about being faithful to their wife uh, didn't worry about you know morality didn't worry about what they watched through their eyes didn't worry about how they conducted themselves spent their money however they want how many older men do you know like that in our culture in this area and you look at them and you think what a pathetic lonely man who's alienated from his wife his children don't really want to be with him people his coworkers don't really like him and so he's desperately lonely that kind of story could be multiplied over and over. But once upon a time, that older man was a young man. Maybe a good-looking young man with lots of promise. And boy, he was doing this and riding there and doing everything and making money. And, and at that time, maybe things like, seemed like they were going in a great way. My point is simply this, that we need to tell one another the truth, particularly in the church that There's only one good, satisfying way, and that is with the Lord. And this is what Asaph is, is doing. He, he's saying, I, oh, he's horrified in verse 15. If, if I had said that, if I had opened my mouth and told others what I was thinking, I possibly could have caused the younger generation to stumble, and they would have departed from God and say, what's the use? Why do I want to be a Christian? Why do I want to follow Jesus? I mean, you know, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. He would have betrayed them. I bless and thank God that I have been blessed by him in my life in the whole span of my life with with particularly some older men in the church who told me the truth that the best way, the most delightful way, The most satisfying way to the heart of the heart is truly with Jesus Christ. And I'm ashamed to say that I didn't always believe them. There are times when I'm ashamed to say as a young man, I I dipped my toe, as it were, in the promises of the world. God, in his mercy, brought me back. I'm sure others of you can tell that story. Others of you can tell the story of, I didn't dip my toe in, I jumped in, I dove in. And, and you can tell the younger ones here that the way that this world promises is empty, vain, shallow, promises much but delivers little. We don't want to betray the generation of your children, of, the, of God's children And I've I've put out this challenge many times over the years, and and I I don't expect anybody to seriously come back at me. But I just want the young people here to know, I want you to know this seriously, that I love preaching the glory of God and the gospel, and I love worshiping God, and I love this way, not because it's my job. Really. I, and I've said this actually at funerals, on occasion when it was appropriate, uh, maybe I didn't say it like this as pointedly. I'm going to say it, but you tell me: where is this more joyful way than following Jesus? What is there? What what what's the good? The drugs, the illicit sex, wealth, money. Where are all these happy, happy people? Where are these? Where's the where's the promise of that lie? Where, is is it really good? Is there anything better? than following Christ. No one's ever come back to me and said, "Well, actually," <laughs> and I that will never happen. I know it will never happen. But to the promises of the world, we need to be a little bit more bold sometimes and and look under the lid. And where's the substance to this? We see on on the film or, or on the magazine covers or we see in the television shows these people apart from Christ who are desperately looking for happiness and and it seems like everybody's smiling and everybody's found it in the right vacation just the right vacation or or just the right furniture set up in their room or just the right makeover or just the right cup of coffee and I love coffee but But all these things are in and of themselves shallow and cannot satisfy the soul. And it's worse than that. Not only is that the world's way apart from God, an empty promise, it cannot deliver. But there's actually a bill to pay for living apart from God. There's a bill coming, there's a reckoning coming, and no one can afford to pay it. Because it's a serious thing to dismiss God. And so in verses 15 to 17, the psalmist comes to his senses and he said, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. This is the time when he was really vexed about this. He's really wondering because following God was costing him and the, the wicked seemed to have it easy and going well. But then he came to his senses, verse 17. And interesting, when did he come to his senses? When he came into the sanctuary of God. In the presence of God. And in the presence of the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God. God took off the blinders and he saw and he came to his senses for the first time in a long time. And suddenly those who lived apart from God who who seemed on the outside to be happy and carefree. He sees their misery. There they are actually. Slipping, sliding their way to destruction. And not just self destruction, it is that, but destruction ultimately, a, a, a reckoning for their defiance of God, a dismissing of his ways, their abuse of others. You can't live that kind of worldly life by the way without hurting others. Not possible because it is by nature a life defined by pursuing self above all they they are reckon they are accountable to god for their godless life and he sees through in the majesty of god and his presence the holiness of god that there's a day of judgment coming and it's as if god gives him a, a vision of the future of of that moment when they are cast into hell. In verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. All of their wealth, all of their seeming security and their success is obliterated in a moment in the presence of God. They are swept away, verse 19. Their life of seeming success and, and, and promise and joy and their way apart from God was like a dream, a moment. Because when God rises, he will despise them. It doesn't matter how many likes you have on your social media platform. If God doesn't like you, it's not good. And how is it that God might like you? He says in Isaiah, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite, and who trembles at my word. That's the one that God is pleased with, not the perfect person, but the person who is humble, who earnestly seeks to please God and follow his ways. The psalmist was, and then he confesses in verse 21 how stupid, how foolish his wrong line of thinking was he said my heart was embittered this is a confession he's not defending himself I was pierced within I was senseless and ignorant I was like a beast he's saying I I cannot believe I even entertained those thoughts so foolish so stupid to think that somehow the life apart from God is the best way And so he turns from his unbelief and then verse 23 begins to confess the goodness of God. He has his troubles but that's that's not all he has. He is continually with God because God has taken hold of his right hand. Jesus may be referring to this this image here in John 10 when he says my sheep hear my voice and I know them. No one can take them out of my hand. My father, who is greater than I, no one can take them out of his hand. The the wonder that as you humble yourself and put your faith in God so that you say, oh, God, you are my God. I have no other. That man or that woman, that boy or girl, that young man or young woman who puts their trust in God, God lays hold of you with his hand of power, his right hand as it were, and he has you. And he's guiding you, and even those trials, we quote it frequently, Romans 8, but God really, really, really does work all things for the good of those who love him. So that those pains that you experience, those Those things that you seemingly miss out on that others in the world seemingly have easily. Those losses that you suffer, which can be real and significant. There's no dismissing them. The losses that you will suffer, the money that you may suffer, the job you may lose on account of following Christ. With God, you haven't lost anything. There's nothing that we forfeit in serving and following Christ. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, that he will not return to us manyfold. God, the psalmist says, is his portion? If you have God, if you ever thought of this, think think of this. If you have God, if He has given Himself to you, if you, by faith you've you've put your faith in God, who made all good things? Who made a cool breeze on a hot day? Who made a sweet, ripe peach? Those strawberries, they weren't so good this year, were they? But on your average summer, a June strawberry at its full ripeness, who made that? And who made the taste buds in the mind to process it and to delight in it? God. God. I need to say this with, with so many young people in the room, and the temptations there are and, and sexual immorality. Who made sex? Not the devil. <laughs> the way the world is, you think that that's, that's the devil's design. The devil made sex, and God doesn't want you to have anything to do in that area with trouble. You know God made sexual pleasure and intimacy between a husband and wife. And God said, it's good. Who made, who made what is lovely? Who made what is beautiful? God. Who made kindness? Who made companionship and friendship? God. All these things. Every single good thing you have ever experienced in your life in its pure form is a design and gift of God. So, if you have God... And in his word, he essentially says, "Trust me. I have come to give you life and abundantly, not only now, but in the future." As we saw in Second Peter this morning, briefly that verse, "We are looking for a new heaven and new earth. He will show us good things. He will show us good things. If we have God, we have everything, everything. God is, he says, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The end of those who are far from God, verse 27, is they will perish and he'll destroy them. I mean, what's the point if you go crazy for 50, 60, 70, maybe 80, 90 years? If at the end you're destroyed. Once you get to around 80 Your mid-80s. There's a few here who can testify that. You're going to see, wow, that went pretty fast, and all you're going to have left is the prospect of a reckoning with God. How foolish. Those who are far from God will perish, and he will destroy those who are unfaithful to him. It's a serious warning. But verse 28, But as for me, the psalmist says, Asaph, as he's come to his senses, the nearness of God is my good. I may have troubles in this world, and I will have troubles. I may have perplexities. I may have things that uh, sorrows, disappointments that that sometimes seem continuous. But over and above all those things, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have God, and He's not far off somewhere on vacation or busy. He himself indwells us by his own spirit and has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Even when those who we love, the closest, those precious relationships that God has given us and God has given them to us, when our our closest companions and friends in this life depart, we still have God. God will never leave us. He's with the believer in every circumstance. He's with us even when we're not conscious of his presence. He's with us when we sleep. He's with us when we're sick. He's with us when we're young. He's with us when we're old. The psalmist here is testifying that God was with Asaph even when he was down going down this wrong line of thinking. And God was patient with him. And so Asaph tells us, let the world have what it thinks is good. The nearness of God is my good. You you can have your good. Have it. As for me, the nearness of God is good. And I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge. We're safe with him. What a wonderful comfort for, the, for believers. But again, I want to say for young people in this world of so much uncertainty, so many questions about what you're going to do in your life or how you're going to make a living or who you're going to meet for your spouse or all these things that are perplexing you and, and frightening you and, and you're wondering, what am I going to do? Put your faith in the Lord and he'll be a refuge for you. You're safe. He's got it covered. He'll plan your steps. He already has not planned. And the point of all this is so that we might tell others of his, of his works. God is our good. And what a privilege that as we meet, we can tell others of how good he is. There's no one like God. There's no better way. And those of us who are older, we need to open our mouths... And we need to tell the truth, that the promises of this world, they're not all inherently evil, they're not all bad, but the promise of there being joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in looking a certain way or possessing a certain thing or having a certain level of money is empty. It doesn't satisfy. We need to tell the truth to to the young people, to the next generation. There is no one like God. There is no one. And the older we get, we need to evidence that a little bit more. I'll close with, again, my my father-in-law, Chris's dad. Many of you knew him, Herman Heinz. I just, I thank God he's one of those men in my life who, even towards the last days of his life, as he had Parkinson's disease and this guy who was once a great athlete and who was far more active than I am at my age, and and, um, as as Parkinson's took from him his abilities, as he was increasingly in a condition that you would look on him and think, this is so miserable, And and it was insofar as his physical condition, but inside that increasingly maimed body was a heart that was truly, sincerely filled with awe and thanks because of the treasure that he had in God he has in God even right now and I know you've known others like that and may God help us come to our senses and recognize that the nearness of God is our good and he is our portion forevermore let's pray we pray that it may be so God keep us from the lies and temptations of this world and from the evil one we thank you so much for this testimony in your word about a man who, who came to a point of great temptation and really um, wondered if following you was worth it. We pray that you would keep our the the vision of our heart twenty twenty. We pray that it would be clear and that our hearts would be riveted on the glory of Christ. Of the promises and the goodness of what you have in store for us ahead that we would be like Moses and and disdain the promises and riches of this world in comparison to the promise of following you help us to be men and women of faith in this generation I pray Lord I'm so grateful for all the young people who are with us in this church and here tonight even and I pray that that they may, at a very early age, realize that the cost of following Christ, in the end, is really no cost at all. And that they may know truly you as the delight and portion of their souls. And may they know may they know and experience your nearness and the joy of having you, Lord Jesus, as their friend, as their Lord, as their companion, as their Savior, as their King. We pray that for all of us, in Jesus' name, amen.